So this morning we're starting a four-week series, Christmas series, on what Luke's gospel teaches us about Jesus' birth. And I thought some of you might be wondering, who is Luke? So here's a little bit of background about who Luke is. Luke was described by Paul in the book of Colossians, chapter 4, verse 14. Paul says, Luke, the the beloved physician, greets you as does Demas. So Luke was a physician. He was a doctor. And he was beloved, which means he was loved by many people. And then look at what Paul says in Philemon chapter 1, verses 23 and 24. He says, Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you, and so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. So Luke was one of Paul's fellow workers. He worked with Paul in preaching the gospel, in evangelism, and in church planting. And we know that Luke traveled with Paul on some of Paul's missionary journeys because Luke wrote the book of the Acts of the Apostles. And there are sections in the book of Acts where Luke uses the pronoun we to describe himself and Paul and his associates. One example is in Acts chapter 16, verses 11 and 12. Luke writes, So setting sail from Troas, we made a voyage to Samothrace and the following day to Neapolis and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city in the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city for some days. So Luke traveled with Paul on many of his missionary journeys. And I love what Irenaeus wrote about Luke. Now, you say, who is Irenaeus? Irenaeus was a church leader in the southern part of France lived around 130 to 180 A.D. Here's what he wrote. Luke was always attached to and inseparable from Paul and with him performed the work of an evangelist and was entrusted to hand down to us a gospel. So that's some of who Luke was. And the gospel that Irenaeus was talking about is the gospel according to Luke which we have in our Bibles. And in the first four verses of Luke's gospel, he tells us what his purpose was in writing. So why does Luke write this gospel, which means why did he write these first verses, these first chapters about the birth of Jesus? And look at what Luke writes, starting in verse 1 of chapter 1. Why did Luke write his gospel? He says, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, so boiling all that down, he's saying lots of people have written accounts of Jesus. Verse 2, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, so these written accounts that are circulated all originated with eyewitnesses, who'd been with Jesus from the very beginning. So because of that, verses three and four, Luke says, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty 
concerning the things you have been taught. So verse 1 says there's been many written accounts about Jesus. Verse 2 says those were based on eyewitnesses who were part of Jesus' ministry from the beginning. And verses 3 and 4, therefore Luke says to his friend Theophilus, I'm writing this account to you myself. I've studied this carefully. This is for you so that you can have certainty in the things you're believing about Jesus. Now, who was Theophilus? We don't know. And surely Luke intended this gospel for a broader audience than than just Theophilus. And so the reason that Luke writes this gospel is so that Theophilus and all those who read it, including all of us today, can have certainty and confidence in the things that we believe about Jesus Christ. That's why Luke wrote. So then let's raise this next question. How does Luke begin the story of Jesus? Remember, Matthew began his gospel with a long genealogy tracing Jesus' origins. Mark began his gospel by describing John the Baptist's ministry, and John opened up his gospel by telling us that Jesus has always been God from eternity past. So how does Luke open up his gospel? Let's start with verses 5 through 7. He says, in the days of Herod, king of Judea. Now just, just to pause there, back at this time they didn't have a set year system, dating system, so you couldn't say in the year like, you know, 0 AD or something like that. So instead, they would track events based on people, kings, rulers that everybody was familiar with. So this is Luke's way of saying this really happened at the time of Herod, king of Judea's reign. And that's significant because it's clear that Luke is not saying once upon a time these things happened or, or how does Star Wars open in an empire long ago, far away, some other galaxy. That's not what he's saying. This happened in history on planet Earth, these events really took place. Luke wants us to be gripped with that. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. So Luke starts with Zechariah and Elizabeth, who were old, quite old, but sadly had never been able to have children. Now he says they were both righteous and blameless. That does not mean they were sinless. Those kinds of phrases in the Bible mean that they trusted God, they sought to obey God, and when they stumbled and sinned, they confessed that to God and turned back to God. So Luke wants to make it clear that they were blameless and righteous in that sense. And I think the reason he wants to emphasize that is so that no one would think that the reason they were childless was some kind of punishment from God. They were righteous. They were blameless before God. So verses 5 through 7 start off on a, 
on, on a sad note here. Here's this godly older couple who've never been able to have a child. But what happens next? Now, while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. Now, here's a picture of the temple. I want you to see this. This is Herod's temple right now. This is not the temple that was built by Solomon. That was destroyed back around 580 B.C. This is Herod's temple, which was completed around the year 10 B.C. And twice a day, sacrifices would be offered in the outer area, which is down to the bottom right of the picture there. Yes, the bottom right of the picture. And can you see how little the people are in the picture? They're really tiny. Can you see that? Those little things, those are people. Okay, this is, this is a big temple there. And while the animal sacrifices were being offered twice a day, there would also be incense burned in the holy place, which is right in the center. This is not the holy of holies. That's farther to the upper left. But right there, in fact, you can see that might be a picture of Zechariah right there at the little incense section. And he's offering incense. So this gives you a picture. This is a big deal that's going on. This is the temple. And by lot, Zechariah was chosen to be the one offering incense while the animal sacrifices were being offered. Now, a priest would do this once in his lifetime. So this is a once in a lifetime. This is like the peak of Zechariah's priestly career here. And Luke builds dramatic tension. We can feel the, the, the dramatic tension of the story growing. He's mentioned, he mentions the whole multitude of people that are outside, kind of to the bottom right-hand side. We can't see exactly where they are, but they are all praying. So we have the, the sadness of Zechariah and Elizabeth being old and childless. We have the excitement of Zechariah chosen. This is his once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to burn the incense while the animal sacrifice is being offered. And then we have everybody outside praying. So this is, you feel the dramatic tension building up. So what happens next? Verse 11. And there appeared to him, Zechariah, an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. Now to get the significance of this, the last time in the Bible that an angel appeared to someone was 500 years before to Zechariah, which he records in the book, which you can read, Zechariah. It's been a long time since an angel has appeared to someone. And so since this is the first time in the Bible that an angel appears to someone in 500 years, we know this is a very special event going on. Something really, really important is happening here. And so what happens? Verse 12, Zechariah was troubled when he saw him. You can understand why. And fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you shall call his name John. Now just pause for a moment. I, I want you to get this. 
There's a much bigger deal going on here than just Zechariah and Elizabeth having a child. But this is a, a crucial subplot in what's taking place here. So think about it. We, we got the whole temple thing going on. We got animal sacrifice. We've got incense being burned. We've got all the people praying. We've got the first biblically recorded appearance of an angel in 500 years. What does the angel say to Zechariah? Your prayers for a baby have been heard. And I want to stress that because this is glorious and this is how God loves to operate. Here, big things are happening. Huge, massive events we're going to see in the rest of this passage. But a subplot is Zechariah, your prayers for a child have been heard. And I want to stress to you, I would guess that some of you have thought or maybe even said recently, my prayers have not been heard. And I want you to understand that everyone who prays from the heart, in Jesus' name, relying on Jesus Christ's righteousness, relying on his death paying for our sins, not our own righteousness, not our own trying to earn our way to God by our own goodness, but when we pray in Jesus' name from the heart, every time God hears your prayer. Every time. And so for those of you who have said recently, or thought recently, or felt recently, I don't think God is hearing my prayers. Luke would want you to understand, everyone who prays in Jesus' name, God has heard your prayers. And he is either going to do exactly what you've asked for or something even better. You can be confident of that. He's heard your prayers. So that's a subplot that's going on here. Zechariah has been praying for a child, and the angel comes and says, your prayers have been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, is going to give birth to a son. You are to name him John. But this isn't going to be any ordinary baby. Look at what the angel says next. Verse 14, you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. Now, people did drink wine in, in in the Bible times, we see that clearly. It's always been wrong to get drunk. Don't seek your peace or your joy in alcohol. We have a far better supply of peace and joy in the Holy Spirit, trusting Christ, pouring out our souls before him. But John wasn't gonna drink any wine or strong drink, and he was gonna be filled with the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb. And then there's more, verse 16. And he, John, when he grows up, this baby, he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. He's going to turn many of the Israelite people back to trusting God. And he will go before him, he will go before God, before the Messiah, in the spirit and power of Elijah, to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedience to the wisdom of the just. So the hearts of the fathers restored, families are going to be strengthened, and he'll turn the hearts of the disobedience to the wisdom of the just. People will be turning away from sin 
to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Now, as soon as Zechariah heard these words, he would have recognized them as have been written in the Old Testament in the book of Malachi, written 450 years earlier. Let me give you some background to this. All through the Old Testament, God promised that he was going to send the Messiah. The Messiah was going to be God in the flesh, fully God, fully man, going to be born of a virgin. He would come and suffer and die to pay for the sins of everyone who will trust him. And he will rise from the dead, showing that what his death accomplished was exactly that. And so all through the Old Testament, you have promises. God says, I'm going to send the Messiah. I'm going to send the Messiah, born of a virgin, fully God, fully man, suffering on the cross, all these prophecies through the Old Testament. But that's not all. God also promised that before the Messiah comes, God is going to send a messenger like the prophet Elijah who will prepare people for the coming of the Messiah. And that's what the angel is referring to. The words the angel said are taken right from the prophecy in Malachi, which is written 450 years earlier. Let me show you what Malachi says. Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. Behold, I send my messenger, God says. My messenger, there's the, the one who's going to be, prepare the way for the Messiah. And he will prepare the way before me. So before God comes to earth in the person, God is going to send this messenger who will prepare people. Then Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. So Zechariah would have known as he hears the angel saying these words, which are in the book of Malachi, written 450 years earlier, Zechariah would have known that his son was going to be the one preparing the way for the Messiah. This baby, who he'd been praying for for years, who's going to be born to them as an old, old couple, this baby, John, when he grows up, is going to prepare the way for the Messiah, which also means that the Messiah is about to come. So Zechariah would have understood all of this from the angel's words. Now keep reading in verse 18. And Zechariah said to the angel, how shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him. This is kind of a mild rebuke here. The angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. Catch the mild rebuke there. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. 
just like the angel Gabriel had said. And they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple and he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived. And for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. Don't you love that subplot of God's mercy to Zechariah and Elizabeth? But that's just a subplot. Back to the big plot. What happens six months into Elizabeth's pregnancy? Verses 6 and 7. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, the angel Gabriel, same angel, was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. So same angel Gabriel, instead of visiting Jerusalem, he visits Nazareth about 120 kilometers north, and he visits Mary, young virgin girl who's betrothed to Joseph, which means she was engaged to him. Now, she would have been pretty young at this point. And look what the angel says to her starting in verse 28. He came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Now, what is this special favor that God is going to show towards Mary? Verse 31, And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Who is this Jesus? Verse 32. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Son of the Most High God. So this baby is going to be called the Son of God. Now that would have shocked Mary, and she would have also been shocked at what he says next. Verse 33, And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. So her baby is going to be the son of God, and he is going to rule on David's throne forever. Now that would have shocked Mary because she would have remembered that there were many times in the Old Testament when God promises that the Messiah who he's going to send will sit on the throne of David and that his rule on David's throne will spread everywhere and will last for all time. And so Mary would have remembered all these prophecies that the Messiah is going to sit on the throne of David. Messiah's rule on David's throne will last forever. And so Mary would have understood clearly, my baby 
is going to be the son of God, my child, my son is going to be the Messiah whom God has promised. And I want to share with you one particular promise that God made about the Messiah and involving David's throne, which Mary probably thought of. We, we had this read earlier. It's from Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. This is an astonishing promise in the Old Testament about the Messiah. Look at what Isaiah writes. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. So a baby's going to be born. Now, what do we learn about this baby? And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called, now get these names, Wonderful Counselor, Second, mighty God. Let's connect those two dots. A baby born whose name is mighty God. Mary's baby is going to be fully God and fully man. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And here's the kingship of David that he will of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So Mary would have known that the angel was telling her that she was going to give birth to a son. His name was going to be Jesus, and he was going to be the Messiah who had been promised for hundreds, thousands of years to the people of Israel. The Messiah who was going to come, fully God, fully man, who was going to be born as a baby, who was going to grow up, was going to suffer, was going to die to pay for the sins of all who would trust him and who would rise again and rule the throne of David everywhere and forever. That's the baby that Mary's going to have. But Mary does have a question. It seems that the marriage date was still quite a ways off in the future, and it sounds like this baby's going to be born soon. And so she asks in verse 34, Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. This is an awesome statement here. The incarnation, which means the in embodiment, the enfleshment, God in the flesh. Her pregnancy, Mary's pregnancy, is not going to be brought about by any man, not brought about by any sexual relations. Her pregnancy will be brought about by the supernatural, miraculous power of God. 
miraculous. And this miraculous supernatural conception means that this isn't going to be an ordinary child. This is going to be the Son of God. God in the flesh. Emmanuel, which means in Hebrew, God with us. That's what the angel is telling Mary. Then verse 36. And behold, your relative Elizabeth, in her old age, has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her, who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. Not your supernatural conception, Mary. That's not impossible with God. Not Elizabeth's pregnancy at this old age. Nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Now don't miss the It's hard to overstate the significance of what's going on here. 2,000 years ago, God, the creator of the universe, who is sovereign over everything, God came to earth, born as a baby. I mean, this is a glorious picture of our God, who is God all-powerful, sovereign over everything, having been from eternity past, humbling himself to that point to be born as a baby. This is what we are celebrating, church. The birth of the God-man, fully God, fully man, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, who came to suffer and die. God came to suffer. God came to die, to suffer punishment for the sins of all who would trust him so we can be forgiven and saved. This is what we're celebrating. And so as, as Amber prayed earlier, I just want to reiterate, let's take this Christmas season as a time to go deep in pondering what has happened with Jesus' birth and the significance of what his birth means to us and to take time to worship and to read and to pray and to fellowship and to invite people to carols in the desert and to our Christmas Eve service or to our Friday gatherings to invite people over to to explain what Christmas is all about. This is our time to celebrate, to wonder, to be in awe, to glory, to rejoice, and to celebrate. So don't get too busy during this Christmas season. Carve out time to worship, to wonder, to adore. But what I want to focus on, especially at the end here, is that line in verse 38, which is, I think, what Luke is especially emphasizing, because it's what the angel is especially emphasizing. Nothing will be impossible with God. That's what this passage means for us. Nothing will be impossible with God. Luke wants us to understand that even though Zechariah and Elizabeth were way past childbearing years, God could give them a son, John, who would prepare the way for the Messiah, Jesus, to be born. And God can do that because nothing will be impossible with God. Nothing. 
Luke also wants us to understand that even though Mary was a virgin, God could cause her to get pregnant and give birth to the Messiah, God in the flesh, fully God, fully man. And the reason God can do that is because nothing will be impossible with God. And because John prepared people for the Messiah and because the Messiah came and died and paid for sin, what that means is that because you are trusting Jesus, because you're trusting Jesus, you're trusting him as your savior, you're trusting him as your Lord, you're trusting him as your treasure, because you're trusting Jesus, that means that all of your sins are forgiven. Just let that rest upon you afresh. And it means that because all your sins are forgiven, all of God's promises are true for you. Every promise God has made in the scriptures, he will fulfill for you. Every promise. Why? Because nothing will be impossible for God. Let me give you a couple of examples that I thought might be helpful for some of us this morning. Some of you might be wondering, if your the sins you've committed, the things you've done wrong, even the, the sin that might be in your heart right now, the temptations you're grappling with, you might wonder if your sins are simply too great to be forgiven by God. Maybe your guilt makes it impossible for God to forgive, but I want you to listen to this promise from 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. If we confess our sins, if we confess our sins, that's our part, we must confess our sins. But if we confess our sins, Father, forgive me, I've sinned against you, change me, I'm sorry. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Why? Because nothing will be impossible with God. Jesus died and paid for sins so that this could happen. So no one here should think, my guilt is too much for me to be forgiven by God. Confess your sins, put your trust in Jesus. You will be completely forgiven by the God of the universe. All your sins, past sins, present sins, and future sins, because nothing will be impossible with God. Others of you might be wondering if the temptation that you are battling, you've been battling, and this is a fierce temptation and a strong temptation, and, and you're wondering, I, I think this temptation is just too much. I'm not sure that, that God can set me free from this temptation. I'm not sure that God can enable me to overcome this temptation. I'm not sure it's possible for God to give me enough power to resist this temptation. Listen to the promise. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. Because you're not alone here. Everybody gets tempted. And God is faithful. And he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Doesn't make any difference how strong the temptation feels, how wimpy you feel in the face of that strong temptation, how impossible it seems that you could ever overcome that temptation, God promises he will provide a way of escape that you will be able to endure it. And the reason God will do that is because nothing will be impossible with God. 
You're battling temptation right now. God will enable you to overcome that temptation. He has promised. One more example. Some of you might, as Aaron prayed earlier today, you may be going through very difficult trials and heartbreaking tragedies. And they may feel so painful and so costly and so horrible that you can't imagine that anything good could be brought out of these difficulties. You might think it's impossible for even God to bring something good out of these difficulties. But listen to what Paul promises in Romans 8.28. You know this promise, but hear it afresh. And we know that for those who love God, all things, all things, those trials right now that you've been facing or have been facing, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. God has promised to work those trials to bring you great good. Great good is coming because nothing is impossible with God. That's what the angel wanted to emphasize to Mary in regard to Zachariah and Elizabeth, in regard to Mary's pregnancy, and that's what God wants to emphasize to us this morning. Nothing will be impossible with God because of Jesus' death, paying for our sins by faith in him, all of God's promises are true. Nothing will be impossible with God. Let's stand. I want to pray for us. God, I ask that you would pour out even more of your power upon us right now. We praise you for your omnipotence, your infinite power, and that nothing is impossible with you. I pray for those who are struggling with guilt over sin and doubting that even you could forgive them. And I pray, Lord God, that you would grip their hearts with the reality of the Messiah's coming and death on the cross and the promise of forgiveness and that they would confess their sins right now, trust you afresh right now, and that you would pour out your assuring love that they would know they're completely forgiven. I pray for those who are battling temptation right now temptation can be very, very difficult. But Lord, you are far stronger and you will provide a way of escape so they can endure it. Strengthen their confidence in you. Meet them right now. Give them wisdom as to what that way of escape might be and deliver them from that temptation, we pray in Jesus' name. And Lord, those here who are going through very difficult suffering and trials, who have come close to or have lost hope. Lord, we pray that right now you'd use your word. They would see that you are going to bring great, great good out of these trials they're going through because you have promised and because nothing will be impossible with you. In Jesus' name, amen.